Pop quiz. Are restaurants open for indoor dining where you live? At what capacity? What about patios? What about next week? Were they open a month ago? Do you know if they'll be open by Christmas? Well, here's the thing. Neither do they. In the initial shock of the pandemic this spring, local restaurants took a huge hit, but it was a largely understandable one. They were forced to close immediately for all but takeout and delivery. Various programs from wage subsidies to rent help were created, some more helpful than others. And then they remained closed until COVID numbers came down and patio season arrived with outdoor dining. This fall, though, with the patios getting colder by the day and virus numbers rising almost everywhere in Canada, restaurants in many parts of the country are taking another hit, but this one is much less predictable and potentially much more dangerous. Just to give you an example, restaurants in Toronto were slated to be able to reopen in early November as the province's extension on closures was going to expire. But then the city of Toronto instituted its own order that extended that provincial order to mid-December. And now the provincial government has changed its own thresholds for what's open and what's closed at various stages. So it's totally unclear when or if or how restaurants will be able to operate. So what do they do? How do you plan for that? How do you keep your business afloat? How do you pay your staff even enough for them to survive? How does a restaurant survive this pandemic winter? How many of them will make it? And what can we and the government do to help them? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. John Sinopoli is a restaurant owner based in Toronto. He's the co-organizer of SaveHospitality.ca. And because work is hard these days, we are reaching him in his restaurant today. Hello, John. Good afternoon. I guess my first question is just, and I realize this is a loaded question from for anyone in your industry right now, is just how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a challenging time. Uh, if you had asked me that maybe in the summer with patios at full capacity, we'd probably say, hey, we're not doing bad. We're, we're surviving. And uh, now with cooler weather and uh, abandoned indoor dining in Toronto, it's a massive challenge for the industry as a whole and obviously specifically for us as a company. And we're going to talk about what the winter looks like in just a few minutes, but maybe start by giving me some examples of some of the more creative ways restaurants have adapted uh, to survive over the past eight months. Sure. So there is a lot of new revenue streams that people have uh, attempted to engage for their businesses. The most obvious is just like takeout and delivery people who uh, haven't done a lot of that in the past have had to sign up for all the platforms and get a delivery driver and promote their takeout menus. And then also, you know, from our front, I know that we've really started to create virtual experiences for clients, whether it be corporate clients or private clients for celebrations, whether we prepare a meal, uh, like a full meal in a box, like a meal kit, deliver it to their house with video instructions on how to reheat, prepare or finish it, and then have like a, a, some kind of online live engaged entertainment value add as well. So 
you know, there's those kinds of mechanisms which still kind of fall under the hospitality like umbrella. You know, other things we've done is to create an online store that we sell prepared foods, prepared products, wine, beer, on uh, cocktails, things like that. Obviously, selling it with food um, as the law provides, but you know, really trying to create every new vertical of revenue we can. And it's a challenge because you don't have as many people to work with. You're working on many, many different initiatives. Everyone's spread very, very thin. And it seems like the the guest appetite is there, but everyone wants something really fast and really perfect and really ready to go. Um, so people are trying their best and, and, and getting really creative, uh, but it is a massive challenge. How much would you say, and, and you don't have to be super specific because I know, first of all, you can't speak uh, for all restaurants, and second of all, you might not want to get super specific about your own, but um, compared to pre-pandemic revenue levels, what are people operating at now? How much business has been lost over the last three quarters of a year? Sales are down on average 80% for full-service restaurants and 40% for quick-service restaurants. Quick service restaurants were already set up for a lot more takeout, catering, drop-in kind of uh, thing. Full service restaurants, less so. Obviously, we rely on you know wine service and at table experience and like very you know artfully prepared food. It varies restaurant to restaurant, but that's a good average. You know, for us, uh, when the patios were in full throttle in the summer, we were probably down 30, 40 percent because you know there's only limited seating. Um, now we're down much, much more, um, like 80, 90% every day. And now those sales are offset with us with some online sales and, you know, in-store retail with like, you know, kind of prepared foods, bottle shop stores we've created in our restaurants, um, you know, and that's location specific. Some uh, neighborhood places are doing much better. The downtown core places are doing much worse. You mentioned that uh, delivery has become a huge part of most restaurants' uh, business model now. We've seen a lot of go local, buy local, order from your local restaurants from services like Uber Eats and Foodora. Um, has their approach to encouraging uh, local patronage trickled down to you guys? Because I know last time we talked, the thought was what they were doing was not great for restaurants' bottom line. Has that changed at all? Perhaps. Uh, I think it's a tough question. They definitely have been trying to drive local business. That is not an altruistic effort on their part. The more business they drive through their platform, the more money they make. They haven't really changed their fees mm -hmm. for us. I mean, some have waived like some initial startup fees and registration fees. But in general, their cut is still significant. And, and you know, here's the thing. Those online platforms were set up where the, the percentage of sales they took was not supposed to be so impactful because online, like Uber or Foodora or whatever these platforms are, there's those sales are supposed to be supplemental to a restaurant's core sales. But now what happens is when those sales become a restaurant's core sales, the percentage they take becomes exorbitant. Right. So, so that's the, the flip in dynamic that's happened. And the problem is that I don't believe Uber Eats' business model works at a lower percentage of the take. So that's the challenge that they're in as well. It's the kind of a necessary evil at the moment to be connected to people, to be on those platforms because they do provide an immense amount of marketing and, and reach. But you know, we found in our downtown locations, those platforms are basically all we get orders on for takeout and delivery. Whereas in our neighborhood locations, 
people call in for pickup at a greater rate than they get on an app. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think in the neighborhoods, we've spent many, many years connecting to our clientele, creating regulars out of our neighbors, uh, being a part of the community, doing community charity work and outreach work. Whereas at downtown restaurants, you rely much more on the destination business crowd who goes down there to work. They come in for lunch. They come in after dinner for drinks. If they're not going to work, they're just not there for you. I know as we talk um, here in Toronto, uh, there's no indoor dining currently. I want to get a sense how you live with that kind of uncertainty. How do you manage a a staff and, uh, you know, what I imagine must be a bunch of incoming food that can spoil? Like, how do you how do you juggle that when things change week to week like this? Yeah, it's it's incredibly challenging. It's very, very frustrating. And I think that one of the biggest criticisms our industry has had of government over the past eight months is you need to plan ahead. You need to tell us what you're going to do so that we can plan our businesses around those decisions. When governments make snap decisions with 48 hours notice, they destroy investment in planning that has been put in place for weeks on end on the part of the industry. And they seem to think that, and and the reason they do that is because it's politically expedient to do so. It's politically expedient not to give people a lot of opportunity to criticize a decision before that decision is implemented. Mm. It's politically expedient to make a decision, have it implemented in two days, and everyone just has to live with it. And, and of course, because they also are not looking in terms of case counts and, and exponential growth of the virus, they're not looking three weeks ahead like they should be. They're looking at last week's and yesterday's numbers and praying that they go down. Then when they don't go down, they make a decision. What they should be doing is saying, you know, last week when case numbers were in the 800s or whatever, guys, this is not going to get better. Let's make a call now so that restaurants know the landscape they have in front of them for the next few weeks and can plan accordingly. Instead, they wait. And then when case numbers go up above 1,200, they, they claim that they're backed into a corner. They've been left no choice but to do this. When the reality is that they were given a choice months ago to plan and invest into the prevention of the second wave. And they failed. Where was the planning? Where is the testing? Why are we testing less people now than we were a month ago? in the middle of a second wave. It's insane. It shows that the pandemic has been mismanaged and now small business are paying the price because we are the easiest lever to pull in terms of containment, where if they had done the work they're supposed to do with test numbers, rapid testing, contact tracing, public relations and campaigns that really put the message out there to people that this is serious and you have to wear a mask and no, we're not going to reopen the economy unless things are better. Instead of the waffling back and forth and telling people to live life and don't worry, we need to open, like this mixed messaging that this gov- these governments have put forth, it has made everything a challenge. And as restaurant owners, we don't want to make anyone unsafe, but we don't want to be the only ones being punished for the case numbers going up. When manufacturing continues to run at 100%, when many other industries continue to go to the office without any oversight and any government control. I realize that you guys need uh, case counts to go down so that indoor dining can be open so that you can make some money because you're drastically down. Would you have preferred if the government had said in early September, look, the second wave is coming. Uh, We're shutting down indoor dining and such until December. That's it. We're done. And rather than give you hope uh, of opening in November, because I imagine you were probably 
prepping last week. Yeah, so I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you what we prefer was if the government had done the work it was supposed to do over the summer and September so the case numbers didn't go up. Yes, well, <laughs> we'd all prefer that. The problem is that the narrative that has been created is that it's all about dining and restaurants and gyms. Right. That is such an oversimplification of what is causing the case numbers to go up. And the restaurant industry is crying foul, not because we feel like we're not a contributing factor to case rising. The thing is, we know that we're one of the smallest contributing factors. We're one of the only industries that does full sanitation on a daily basis, that does full contact tracing of every guest that comes in the door, that has PPE protocols in place. Mm -hmm. We're spending almost a thousand dollars a week in our company alone on PPE. So this kind of practices, how could we be the greatest cause of spread? It's impossible. When, when you look at the government's data, you see that it actually is manufacturing and churches and schools and all that. Now, I don't want schools to close, but I'm okay with closing factories if we have to close. The problem is that's not palpable to the provincial government. Whereas restaurants, bars, gyms seem like a very expendable industry right now. And that's the narrative that's the problem, because I'll tell you, my employees are not expendable. Right. How are you prepping right now, then, for the next uh, month at least, with temperatures dropping and no indoor dining? Uh, what are patio heaters going for these days? Are there bidding wars? Can you get a hold of them? <laughs> well, I think people, if you're going to buy them, you've bought them. Uh, they were, about a month ago, almost impossible to find and about triple the price that they're worth. We, we did have that challenge as we tried to increase our number of heaters and expand our ability. The warm weather the past couple of weeks has been amazing for like mm -hmm. some kind of business. There are some very durable people out there who love to eat outside no matter what <laughs> and want a bottle of wine and a steak for it. And they um, are coming out and we're grateful for them. But we are definitely planning a slowdown of patio business. And we're taking measures to try to get people to come in and take out for different reasons. We're working on, you know, like, you know, family dinner nights with different themes that people can come pick up a family of four ready to go. Really pushing to sell our, like, pre-prepared meal kits online for people to order and pick up or have delivered to their home. Um, that, of course, goes with wine and beer as well, if you, if you like. And then, you know, we're also selling a bunch of pantry items and we're working on like more kind of, like I said, corporate delivery options. So we're trying to do all these things, but it's a lot of work for a fraction of the revenue. When we talked in the spring um, about Save Hospitality, uh, you were hoping for more support from all levels of government. Uh, how would you say that's gone uh, since we talked? I know some things have happened. Um, right. How would you put it? It's difficult to gauge. I think it, it needs to be evaluated um, issue by issue. In terms of rent support, I think everyone can just say flat out it's been a failing grade, that the original rent program was way too exclusive of many businesses for multiple multiples of reasons, that they went through the landlords instead of through the tenants, and that caused a massive rift and tension between landlords. And it caused a lot of people just not to get rent relief who really needed it and deserved it because their landlords decided they didn't want to apply or because it was too cumbersome to apply or because the landlords didn't qualify. The new rent relief program they are implementing now, which is still two and a half months in and not, uh, if not in effect yet, um, is the right way to do it. 
where it's the qualifications are based on the tenants. That's the way it should have been for the beginning. That's the way we asked for it at the beginning. So that's that's a if you're gonna do like a, a school grade, that's like a D minus that they've gotten on that. Hopefully that'll improve to like a B in the next month or so, but we'll see. Uh, in terms of the wage subsidy, it was very effective through the summer, and but now the government has changed the calculator on that, and we're getting less subsidy now, even though we need more subsidy given the current situation. And that's because the wage subsidy is meant to be a program for many, many sectors. And yet for the hospitality industry, it's just wholly insufficient at the moment. So that's a challenge. And in our discussions with government, we're looking at other ways that the government, federal government can, can support hospitality sector that is outside of that program because they don't want to change that program for many other industries who may not need the extra support. And then in terms of like, for lack of a better word, liquidity, which means like avail like availability to get money to help pay bills. It's just been not enough. Um, and then basically the provincial government has done nothing. Like they are, they, they've struggled to put a ban on evictions. Um, they struggle to continue to do that. The October ban on evictions um, elapsed and they have not implemented a new one for the province of Ontario. The BC government has implemented a very, very helpful program in reducing the licensee taxes on alcohol uh, purchased by restaurants by 20%. We've been imploring the provincial government of Ontario to do the same in Quebec to no avail. Um, they just don't seem to have an appetite to help small business beyond words at a press conference. And that's a problem. And the, the municipal governments are cash strapped. They're in a very difficult position. Um, you know, they have to balance public safety with small business interests and it's I don't think it's a battle that can't be won on either side. Uh, and, you know, there's been some patio programs that were helpful over the summer for sure. I think on the whole, the federal government needs to recognize that the hospitality industry is an industry that needs special help and sector-specific relief. They've yet to do that. We've heard an acknowledgement of it in the throne speech, but we haven't seen any action on it. We're working with them to suggest ways in which they could do that but it's just painfully slow and the onus is always on us to, to give them the ideas. There's no creativity on their part to help. Um, and so that's a challenge. That's a big challenge. So my last question then is uh, another follow-up from last time when I believe you said, you know, unless more is done, uh, you would estimate that 70% of independent restaurants would maybe not survive this pandemic. Where would you put that figure now? Higher, lower? Um, it seems like it's lower. But we're not over, we're not done yet. <laughs> uh, like just like just yesterday and today, I heard of two very very well esteemed places that are closing for good in Toronto. Um, a huge restaurant group in Toronto last week filed for insolvency protection uh, under the law because of their debts that were just not serviceable with their next to zero revenue in the pandemic we're about to enter the hard winter mm -hmm. um, and people who've been hanging on for summer, like the patio was basically like an economic mirage. Um, and as soon as all the patio business went away, that was allowing people to survive with the subsidies and with the, the supports the government had in place, all that revenue is gone now. And now we're seeing the real insufficiency of the government support. And for the province and municipalities to basically shut down our business and squeeze it to 
80 to 90% less of what it should be, and then only provide, and then the federal government really only provide kind of 40, 50% support. Just, we don't, like, there's nowhere for that other money to come from. Whatever resources, extra cash, or availability to credit the businesses had in the spring, it's gone now. It's just gone. So people have spent what they can spend on plexiglass, on PPE, on setting up outdoor dining, on heaters. Like, we've spent tens of thousands on our company on, on patio extensions, uh, outdoor dining, uh, indoor uh, PPE protection, all of that. Um, and now, though, it means nothing because there's just no business. We'll see what happens through the Christmas season where we are normally making our most money. Our two busiest months of the year are normally coming up. We would have been at 100% capacity moving forward at all our venues for the next two months. Um, now that we're running at 10% capacity at a, at a maximum, time will tell how many survive. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I was wrong with that 70% prediction. I really hope I was really wrong. But I think we're already seeing about, I would estimate about 30, 40% of independent restaurants have closed for good already. And if you don't have, you know, a huge political lobby as a massive industry, like we have never had because we're, we're 30,000 independent businesses, um, it just shows you what you get. Um, and it's a shame because they basically th say that our jobs and our businesses that we've invested in and our livelihoods that we've built over decades, it's just not worth the same as a manufacturing job because that has political power at election time for them, and we don't. John, thanks for giving us uh, a look inside your world, and, and good luck over the winter, and I hope, uh, hope you get some help. Thank you very much. We appreciate the opportunity. John Sinopoli of SaveHospitality.ca. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us there. You can also find our interview with John from the spring. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase at rci.rogers.com and wherever, however you found this podcast. Please tell your friends, head into that podcast player, whichever one it is, leave us a rating, leave us a review, pass it on. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Tomorrow.